0: Hold all of us tonight, Father. And as we go into this uh, continuing saga, this continuing study in the book of Revelation, Father, remind us every step of the way of how wonderful Your grace is. The grace is undeserved, but it is so real and so tangible. And we can do nothing but praise You and thank You for it. And as we consider Your grace and think about Your vast love for all of mankind, Father, we pray tonight... That your Holy Spirit would teach us and breathe your words to life as we've prayed before. Make this book alive to us, Father. And may we live alive in your word. Bless our study our time tonight, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's get back up to speed. Revelation chapter 6, which we looked at last time, pretty much covers the first three and a half years. The first half of the tribulation about which Jesus said would be worldwide in its scope. One way that we know that the tribulation hasn't happened past tense is that something that Jesus indicated very clearly would affect all of the entire world except those who are saved by grace. He said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from... Or out of the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. In Revelation chapter 7, which we'll get to tonight, is an important pause between the first three and a half years of the tribulation and the second three and a half years. What you'll find in the book of Revelation, as things continue to, to speed up, we covered three and a half years of that tribulation period in chapter 6. Well now, chapter 7 through 19, it slows down a little bit. And we begin to walk through these verses, and the Bible gives us clear details as to what will happen during that time called the tribulation. Jesus also said this about it, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. He said, it's a great tribulation, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. He said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Well, who are the elect? It's his people, the Jewish people. It's Israel. Now, I know the church is referred to in some places as the elect, but so is Israel. And so don't just make an assumption, don't make that leap that, oh, because it says the elect, that must be the church, therefore the church goes through the tribulation. No, the elect is also very clearly referred to as Israel in other verses and other passages. But Jesus says something that's key. He says this tribulation, this great tribulation, is something that has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Just two things to think about. The flood happened since the beginning of the world until now. This will be worse. This will be worse. He says nor ever will, which means from that point in the beginning of the world all the way up till now, when this great tribulation happens, it will be so bad, there will be nothing like it. Now, I did a whole teaching a week ago, and you might want to pick it up. Um, We have it on CD, and it's orderable, but it talks about the preterist movement, or preterism in the church, which is that belief that everything is past, preter from the Latin meaning past, that everything happened in A.D. 70, that the great tribulation spoken of in the book of Revelation is an A.D. 70 event. The one thing that knocks that right off the page is Jesus saying, first of all, that it would be worldwide And the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was not worldwide. It was locationally focused. It was Israel that was going through a time. It was a tribulation, but it wasn't this tribulation, because it wasn't worldwide. And furthermore, if AD 70 was the time of the great tribulation, then we never would have seen another time that would beat it or be parallel to it since then. But we've seen the Holocaust, which in terms of numbers of lives and horror was worse than AD 70. So we know that alone, those two things show us, that's not when it happened. It wasn't past tense. This is future tense. Now again, a couple of weeks back, by way of review, we studied in chapter 6, the culmination of mankind's sin. And as you study through it, you realize that these seals, there are six seals that are, that are broken open during that, in that chapter, and each one of these have their origin in the sin of humanity, in the sin of mankind. These six of seven seals that are on that scroll, the scroll, remember, is Earth's title deed that is opened up. And seal number one was the rider on the white horse, which we pointed out is very clearly Antichrist. Why would he be a a rider on a white horse? Because he is Antichrist. By the way, the word Antichrist doesn't mean against Christ. It means another Christ, or in the place of Christ, or one seeking to be seen as Christ. That's the whole point of Antichrist. He will come on the scene as a world ruler, as a great leader, as a man of peace, and people will think he's the Christ. Jews will see him as Messiah. Uh, Muslims will see him as the man of peace who's supposed to come back before Muhammad returns, according to the Quran. And both groups and everyone on the face of the earth will be deceived by this other Christ who is not truly Christ. So, of course, he would be a a rider on a white horse who would look like Christ but would not be him. That's Antichrist. Seal number two in chapter six was the rider on the red horse, which is war. Seal number three, the rider on the black horse, speaking of famine. Seal number four was the rider on the pale horse, which is literally green. We talk about it as that chloros color, that pale, sickly green color. And that horse is death. Seal number five was the martyrdom of tribulation saints. These are people who believe in Jesus after the rapture, who come to Christ after the rapture and actually are saved during the tribulation. Which again we see God's grace marching on. Seal number six, the wrath of the Lamb was kindled. Now, there are those who believe we are not yet seeing wrath poured out as we study through this, that wrath actually doesn't happen until that three and a half year mark, and then wrath happens after that. The perspective is called the mid tribulation view of the rapture, that the church will go through the first three and a half years, and then we'll be caught up halfway through. The problem with that is the Bible tells us, First Thessalonians chapter five, I believe about five nineteen, tells us that we were not destined for wrath, but for salvation. And so the question is, is the wrath being poured out, is it connected to God in chapter 6 in any way, shape, or form? We'll look at the end of chapter 6. It tells us in verse sixteen that uh, 15 and 16, The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the who? The Lamb. People alive at the time know exactly where that wrath's coming from. And they claim it here. It's the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who is able to stand? They cry out. And it's clearly the Lamb who's in charge of breaking these seals. If you go back and read through chapter 6, go back before that. Who is able to open the seals, to break the seals? And John wept in chapter 5. Who could possibly do this? Who can free man of this great debt, of this mortgage that's gone into foreclosure? Who can buy back the mortgage and save mankind? And John is weeping and the elder said, look, it's the lamb. The lamb can do it. The lion of the tribe of David, the tribe of Judah. And so he comes along and begins to break these seals. It's clearly in the hands of the Lamb that the seals are being broken. And it's clearly according to the people live at the time, the Lamb who is doing it. It's his wrath. Now, they cry out, the last verse of chapter 6, The great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Chapter 7 tells us, answers that question who is able to stand in fact there are three I'll call them focus groups <laughs> groups that we want to focus on in chapter 7 three groups who are able to stand in that time during this wrath being poured out but before we get there I want you to be sure and be aware of something my few little title, the grace of wrath we need to understand something we need to not confuse God's wrath with injustice or unfair condemnation Pastor Bob Coy, who's a pastor at Calvary, Fort Lauderdale, said the following. I love this quote. He said, Wrath without warning, judgment without justice, condemnation without caution wouldn't be right, wouldn't be fair, wouldn't be even or just. Most of all, it wouldn't be God. This is not just a God freaking out and blowing things up and going crazy and just, it, just pouring it all out on mankind without any forethought. You need to understand and watch this as we go through the tribulation. For every ounce of wrath poured out, for every ounce of wrath, there is a ton of grace. There is grace all over the pages of the book of Revelation. Oh, it's not grace to you and I. We've already received God's grace. At this point in our study, at this point in the history of this happening, actually in the prehistory, it's yet to be, we're not going to be here. The Bible, I believe, is absolutely crystal clear on that, that we'll be safely tucked away in heaven with the Father while this is going on. But God is still pouring out grace. Not to you and I. We've already received grace. We received it at the cross. But he is still giving mankind every possible chance to be saved. As a matter of fact, and consider this, it's for the sake of grace that there's any tribulation at all. If not for God's grace, there would be no seven-year tribulation period. What do you mean by that? Consider this. Think about this. During the time of the tribulation, there are two specific reasons why it happens. We mentioned this before. You know, if you're going to pass around the chapstick, I'd like a little bit of it. You thought that, you slipped that by me, didn't you? <laughs> two reasons for the tribulation, both of them grace-driven reasons. And it was, it was several years ago where this first came to me and I first finally understood the tribulation is not just about anger. The tribulation is a final chance. We said it this way when we began this study, it's boot camp for the Hebrew. This is how God is going to once again grab hold of the Jewish people. He's going to do it in a way that they understand, the way he did in the Old Testament. When there was severe tribulation, he would take them through serious trials to grab their attention and pull them back like a father disciplining his son or a daughter who was going off the deep end. He is reaching out, and in this seven-year tribulation, he will attempt and will succeed to grab the attention of the Jewish people. Boot camp for the Hebrew. Now, I want you to see something. Flipping your Bibles over to Hosea. There are several absolutely awesome prophecies we're going to look at tonight as regards to uh, the time of the tribulation and what God's really doing here. But Hosea chapter 5 shows us something amazing. Hosea chapter 5, in the Old Testament, book of Hosea chapter 5, it's not quite midway, it's probably midway and then a little bit to the right, Hosea chapter 5, beginning at about verse 14, I'll go ahead and begin reading it, you catch up, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear to pieces, And will go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. Now, listen carefully to this prophecy. The speaker compares himself to a lion, to quote, a young lion to Judah. So, who might this speaker be who says, I will be like a a young lion to Judah? Any guesses? I'd say go with the obvious church answer. Jesus. Jesus, it is, yes Good, that's the thing If you're ever asked a question in a Bible study About who someone is in the Bible Good chance it's probably Jesus So just go ahead and throw it out there I, Is that Jesus? And either people will be impressed Or someone will say, no, I'm sorry, that was Antichrist nice That's <laughs> fine. The speaker compared himself to the lion A young lion to Judah Genesis 49, verse 9 And stay in Hosea, but listen to this, I'll read it to you Jacob is prophesying over his son, Judah, and he says the following. Judah is a lion's whelp. The word whelp means cub. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? Jacob wasn't talking about his son Judah. He was talking about the one who would come through the line of Judah, and that's Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who he is called in in Revelation chapter 5. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah right there. So reading on in Hosea. We see verse 14. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus. He's the one talking here. And listen to what he says in verse 15. I will go away and return to my place. Jesus came. Walked on this earth. Did what he came to do. Was crucified. Resurrected. And he went away and returned to his place. Listen. Read on. Until... Until, and I have that just that word circled in my Bible I will go away and return to my place Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face And watch this In their affliction they will earnestly seek me In their affliction they will earnestly seek me I'll go away, he says, and return to my place He was here He resurrected He ascended into heaven He went back He returned to his place But then he says In their affliction they will earnestly seek me Boot camp. In their affliction, they'll seek me. When times are tough, they will come back to me. The tribulation gang is designed to turn the eyes of Israel back to their true commander, back to their God, back to Jesus Christ. They will earnestly seek me. But notice this, the phrase, they will earnestly seek me. The word earnestly, and this fascinates me, it literally means dawn. They will seek me in the dawn. The way the word is typically used, though, not earnestly, it's they will seek me early. In the first half of the tribulation, early in that seven year period, things will begin to go bad and they'll begin to realize Antichrist is not the Christ. He is a deceiver. And so early in this time of wrath, they will be spun around. Early in this affliction, they will seek him. They will desire to know him. The King James Version of this verse says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense, seek my face, and in their affliction they will seek me early. When will the Jewish people seek Jesus? Early in the tribulation. Early. These prophecies are amazing. Going on, look at chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1. And then this is the response. This is what the Jewish people say in response to the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. The Bible also says how precious are the wounds of a friend. A friend who cares enough, who loves you enough, even to hurt you if it means saving you. And that's what God has done with Israel. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. And look at verse 2, they say, he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. He'll revive us after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day. This is so cool. He'll revive us after two days. They're speaking this. They're saying, okay, there's going to be a period of time here. Two days. I would say that that is indicative of 2,000 years. And on the third day, he will raise us up. What would the third day be? It would be the millennium, the millennial kingdom. And so Jesus says, I'm going to go away, return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt. And in their reflection, they're going to seek me early in that time. And the Jewish people will say, come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us. He'll heal us. He's wounded us. He'll bandage us. He'll revive us after two days. At the end of a period of time. And I believe truly that this is speaking of 2,000 years. He will revive us after 2,000 years. And on the third day, the third thousandth year, that period would be then the millennium. That we may live before him. Wonderful, wonderful grace of God. That he would return and he would pour out this time of tribulation. Not just because, you know, all the earth just deserves it and I'm going to slap him around for a bit. It's so that he can regain the attention of the Jewish people. It is the grace of wrath. While well, people would read about the death and, and the bloodshed and the horrors of tribulation and say, oh, God's just a harsh God. He's just, he's just beating it out. No, He wants to save the people of Israel for all eternity. And if that means seven years of trial and, and heartache and horror and even terror, if that's what it takes to get their attention and save them eternally, I guarantee you not one person of the people of Israel will be sorry for it as they enter into the Millennial Kingdom. They will praise God and thank Him For his amazing grace. Well, it's boot camp for the Hebrew, but we also said it's Brat Camp for the heathen. Brat Camp. You know that that place where they even had a show on TV a while ago called Brat Camp, where parents send their kids the last-ditch effort to get this teenager to turn around and shape up. Send them out, and they're usually, and they have these all over the United States, all all over the world, really, where you get an out-of-control kid, and you send them to a wilderness camp for three months, sometimes six months, And they go out there and they are driven hard and they learn the value of work and they learn respect and they're trained and and kind of retrained so that the parents then can come back and take them home and mess them up all over again. No, it's brat camp and that's what the world needs. And so even though during the tribulation God's grace is being poured out for the Jewish people trying to get their attention, he is also still trying to get the attention of the rest of the world that rejected Christ that didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. People you may even know today who would blow off Jesus as inconsequential, as unnecessary, as you do your church thing, I don't really need it, and God pulls out the stops. And when life gets tough, when life gets tough, people will turn around and will begin to accept Christ. In fact, and you'll see this as we go on in our study, they will accept Him in droves. We're told a multitude of people, the indication is multiplied millions In the tribulation will come to faith in Jesus Christ. J. Vernon McGee put it this way. He said, you know, for all of our evangelistic campaigns, it's entirely likely that more people will come to the Lord in His evangelistic campaign of the tribulation than at any time in the 2,000 years prior to it. We think we really have evangelism down. God knows how to evangelize. And He will still be doing everything possible To save people in this world. Boot camp for the Hebrew. Brat camp for the heathen. heathen And Brat camp, gang, it is God's final desperate act to save a life. If I was one of those who had rejected Christ, I would be one who, if I was turned around in the tribulation, even if I lost everything to get there, I would be one who stood up and praised the Lord and thanked Him for caring enough To love me through that time and to get me into eternity, something I didn't deserve, something I recognize that I don't deserve today. Now, once again, it's for the sake of grace that there is any tribulation at all. You'll see it continue to be poured out as we go on. But who are the counselors at this brat camp? Now, who are the commanders? Who are the chieftains, if you will, at boot camp? Who are the ones that God's going to use? And that's where we get into at the beginning here of chapter 7. It begins with 144,000 very special people. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1. It tells us, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Hang on just a second there. That first phrase, after this. After this. It's actually after these things, which is the Greek phrase?
1: Metatauta. Excellent. After these things. After what things? At this point, it's after the first part of the tribulation,
0: but before the second part, or the great tribulation. And once again, John uses this phrase, and I believe it's a critical phrase in the book, because he uses it to tell us, okay, this has happened, now we're moving on to the next thing. Remember, chapter 1 started out, and Jesus said, I want you to write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place, meta telta, after these things. And the next time we see that phrase used is chapter 4, verse 1. After these things. After what things? After the church age that's talked about in chapters 2 and 3. You get to chapter 4, and John says, okay, here's the key phrase. We're moving on, gang. After these things. Here's the next phase. And so again, he uses it right here at the beginning of chapter 7. We're going now into a new phase of the tribulation. The first half is past, Antichrist has tried to deceive the world War and death and famine and terror It's all followed Antichrist has come right on his heels And now after these things After these things After these things We'll see four Or three, sorry Fascinating focus groups Four assigned angels 144,000 sealed servants And a multitude of martyrs And I believe we'll only get to the first two of those groups tonight Second half of verse 1 He says, I saw four angels. So here's our group. It's actually five angels we're going to see here in just a moment. Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. The assigned angels. Again, first we see four. Then they're standing at the four corners of the earth. Now granted, there aren't four corners of the earth. We know the earth is not flat. It's a phrase. And it's a phrase we still use today. Four corners of the earth denoting coverage of the entire planet. You have four angels that are going to be strategically placed. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 12 tells us he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Israel from the four corners of the earth. And we understand what that means. It means specifically that the, from the four corners from all over the earth Israel is coming back to the land which is happening today. We're watching it, we're seeing it in this generation, the return to the land. And so that phrase, four corners of the earth, is an idiomatic phrase, it's an expression to denote the whole planet. So these four angels are strategically placed, positioned around the globe, and they're told to hold back the winds. How in the world do you hold back the winds? Well, you and I don't hold back the winds, but God does. God has that power. Jesus has that authority. Following the calming of the Sea of Galilee, the disciples looked at Jesus and they said, Who is this that He commands even the winds and the water? And they obey Him. You know what bugs me? One of the things I like about being able to teach and share and having... The mic, as we say, is, uh, I can share with you the things that bug me. I can get them off my chest, and then I can go home and you guys can deal with them. (laughs) What bugs me is a two-word phrase used so often in our culture. It's Mother Nature. Oh, I hate that. Or when Fox News says, Wicked Weather, as if the weather has any power or authority or control itself. No, there is one person who has the authority over the winds and the waves, and that's the Lord Jesus. He's the one who has the ultimate power. I remember as a little kid there was a chiffon commercial. And that chiffon margarine. And they gave it to this woman all dressed up. And she's supposed to be Mother Nature. Some of you remember this commercial? You're kind of nodding. And she takes a bite. And you know, this wonderful butter? And they tell her it's not butter. She says, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And you know, the lightning comes down. I thought, that's so stupid. Authority over nature has always rested in the hands of God. Not in some feminine... God with a little G. So what are these winds talking about? Two things to consider, and this is a little eerie. This is the calm before the storm. The calm before the storm, a stillness which does not bode well for the world because the winds of extreme judgment are about to come. But these four angels are told, hold back the winds, not yet. Hold it back. And I actually believe, literally, there's going to be an eerie silence. Across the earth. That three and a half years of terror is going to happen on planet earth. That as we saw at the end of, of chapter 6, the sky split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up. We see the stars of the sky falling as a fig tree cast its sunrise figs. We see all of the sun becoming as black as sackcloth and the whole moon becoming like blood and people are looking around and things are coming apart and all of a sudden, absolute calm. Four angels holding back the winds. But gang, the winds biblically speak of intense judgment. Jeremiah chapter 49 verse 36 says, I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four ends of the earth and will scatter them to all these winds and there will be no nation to which the outcast of Elam will not go. Jeremiah 51 verse 16, When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of the waters in the heavens and he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth he makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses the winds of judgment there's a sudden eerie calm a stillness the wrath of the Lamb pauses and in this stillness without even the slightest breeze people I think at that time are going to pause As if to say, what's happening next? The winds up here on Whidbey Island and and Fidalgo Island knocked out a lot of power. So a lot of you went through that. And that was an interesting time. And those winds were blowing. And I'll tell you, ever since we built our house up here on the hill, when the winds blow hard, I'm looking out the window at the trees just going, "Uh, (laughs) hold on, baby, hold on. (laughs) I can just imagine one of those massive 100-foot trees just coming right down on the house and watching them blow, and they just blow back and forth. But it was interesting we, see, we knew that the storm was coming. They were telling us it's going to be a bad one. It's going to be a, a real blower. It's going to be a lot of wind out there. And we were watching, and the news was telling us this, but you could look outside, and it was as still as, as you can imagine. It was like, how can it be so still? And in and, and just moments, the wind starts to kick up. And that's the kind of situation going on here, this incredible calm, but it will be far more foreboding. Imagine again at the end of chapter 6 the people are hiding in the rocks because of the wrath of the Lamb. They're freaking out. They can't believe everything coming apart. And suddenly it all stops. And they begin to creep out from the rocks and look about and try to understand what's going on. You could call it a dead calm. How long will it last? Long enough for a critical job to be done. A fifth angel now comes along in the still hours... And he says the following, verse 2, Another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, so it's happening now in the morning, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. Is this the seventh seal that's being talked about? This sealing of the bond servants? No, it's not. We'll see the seventh seal broken by the Lamb in chapter eight. And it will begin then what's called the next series of judgments, the trumpet judgments. But this seal here is a very special seal. It's a seal of identification, of protection. It's a seal of the chosen. Seal of the chosen. The 144,000 sealed servants. Now, if you've heard anything about Revelation, you've heard this number, 144,000. And throughout history, there have been all kinds of people, the last couple of thousand years, trying to claim that it's us. We are the 144,000. Well, who are they really? I can tell you with absolute certainty, they are not the church. They are not Christians. This 144,000 and it's absolutely clear. Many have and some still do believe that this is the church. Some think, well, it's just allegorically speaking of those who are sealed by God, which is the church going through that tribulation. And to say that, you have to ignore other scriptures that indicate otherwise. But let me give you some reasons why this group is not the church. Reason number one, the church is already sealed. In fact, you could put it this way, the church is already signed, sealed, and delivered. <laughs> we had the seal, we have the seal tonight on us, the seal of the Holy Spirit, and we have been delivered at this point up to heaven to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. A pledge of what? Again, listen, when you give your life to Christ, you are sealed with the Spirit, and that 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 seal guarantees your salvation It's that seal, the spirit in you When God looks at you When he sees you, he sees his spirit Who is on you, given to you as a gift To all who would believe The seal of the spirit Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 Paul says, in him you also After listening to the message of truth The gospel of your salvation Having also believed you were sealed in him With the Holy Spirit of promise isn't that great to know? Man, Eric, on your worst day, you're sealed. You're covered. Tom, when you've messed up badly, and I've seen you, you had that seal, (laughs) the protection. As much as I fail in life, I still can turn around and recognize, Man, I'm a goofball, but I am sealed. I'm sealed by the Spirit. Sealed with that promise. Ephesians 1.14 says he is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. His glory, not yours, not mine. Stacy, you weren't sealed because you're doing a good job. Now I personally am impressed with your Christian walk, but that's not why you were sealed. You're sealed because of the glory of God, for the sake of God's name, to the praise of his glory. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. We're not saved by anything that we do. We are sealed to His glory. We are sealed so that people can look and go, Wow, even you? (laughs) I've said this before. We're going to arrive in heaven and look around and go, Wow, Sean's here? That's great. That's wonderful. Someone's going to come up to me and go, Rick, I didn't think that it was possible. But you'd get there. Amen. I was sealed to the praise of His glory. And we will all lift our hands and praise the Lord and thank Him that we got there because of His grace. Ephesians 4.30, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This idea of sealing, of being sealed, it speaks of purchase. Of purchase, of being bought. Now, from a Jewish mindset, you've got to kind of get into it a little bit here. 1 Kings chapters 5 and 6, Solomon is going about the building or preparing to build the first temple. Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. A gorgeous edifice that, that he's going to build. And so he contacts, in 1 Kings 5 and 6, Hiram, the king of Tyre. Tyre up to the north of Israel. He contacts Hiram, who up in what would be Lebanon today. And you've heard of the Cedars of Lebanon. Well, Solomon wants to get some of those cedars to be brought down and actually used for the building of the temple. Now, if you go to Jerusalem with us next year, it's absolutely stunning what they did, how they built things. The archaeological finds are amazing, just the construction of things and how they went about it. They would fell these cedar trees up in Lebanon, up in Tyre fell them, cut them down, knock them over, clear them, and they would bundle them together and put them out in the Mediterranean Sea and sail them down the coast, float them down the coast, kind of like you see happen under the Deception Pass Bridge today. You watch those logs going by? They were doing this, gang, 3,000 years ago. And they would bring the logs down, these cedar logs. Now, how do you know who the logs are for? Because it wasn't just Solomon who could buy them. A rich man might say, I want cedar for my dining room. And so he would contact up there and they would send the logs down. How do you know? They would send purchase up there. They would send money or whatever they were going to send to purchase the cedar logs. And they would usually send a servant with a ring that had the seal of the man or person buying the logs. So in Solomon's case, he would send a servant up there with a seal of his signet ring, and the servant would go and pay for the logs, they'd lay them out there, and they would drip hot wax onto a part of the log, and he'd take the ring and stamp the logs. Well, then you'd drop those logs into the cold Mediterranean Sea, that wax would immediately harden, and they would float on down with Solomon's seal on them that said, I bought these logs, I purchased this, this has my seal on it, these belong to me, when you're sealed by the Lord Jesus. When you have the seal of His Spirit, you've been stamped. So that God says, this one belongs to me. She belongs to me. This is my seal. I've got my seal right here. You can check it. You can know. To be sealed by the Spirit means to be purchased. means to be paid in full, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So these boards would flow down. You could say that we're like boards for a holy temple. Boards to be built into a holy house for the Lord And if you're getting bored, I'll move on If you've accepted Jesus' love and His Lordship over your life You're already bought and sealed for delivery When God calls us to come up You have the seal And so Christians do now So some Christians have read this and said See, there's a seal These people receive the seal of the living God So it must be Christians Not so, the seal is used in other ways In fact, the people of Israel would recognize this so how do we know it's not the church first, the church is already signed, sealed, and delivered. But second, these particular servants have a prior history of having been sealed. What do you mean? we we'll flipping your Bibles back to Ezekiel. Chapter 9. The book of Ezekiel. Another one of these great prophecies I mentioned we would take a look at tonight. Ezekiel chapter 9. beginning in verse 1. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand, and among them, check this out, was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Verse 3. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been. This would be above the Ark of the Covenant. To the threshold of the temple. Let me tell you what's going on here. Ezekiel's receiving a vision that God's glory is leaving the temple. Did you know God's glory rested in Solomon's temple? On the day of dedication, we're told in the Bible that God's glory came into Solomon's temple. and was so thick and so powerful that the priests couldn't even serve in the temple that day. They had to leave. It was just so rife with the Spirit of God and His glory. But Ezekiel caught a vision of God's glory leaving the temple. When they came back, the children of Israel from Judah, came back from Babylonian captivity later and rebuilt the temple, God's glory never entered another time. Never entered the second temple. Never entered, even when Herod built it up even bigger and more beautiful and more fantastic in the, in the second and a half temple, you could put it that way. Some people say there were three temples, Solomon's and then the returning people from Babylon and then Herod's. But Herod just rebuilt the second one. But God's glory was never in the second temple, only in Solomon's temple. And here Ezekiel is getting this vision of the glory of God lifting up from the Ark of the Covenant where it had rested and moving now out to the threshold of the temple. But watch what happens. He called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. Verse 4. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city Even through the midst of Jerusalem And put a mark on the foreheads Of the men who sigh and groan Over all the abominations Which are being committed in its midst But to the others he said in my hearing Go through the city after him and strike And do not let your eye have pity And do not spare What's happening here? God is removing his presence from the temple But he says to this man in linen With a writing case he says to this man, you go and you mark. There are those here, you could call them a remnant. There are those in Israel who are horrified at what Israel is doing. Who don't take part in this. Who are looking at all of the things happening in the midst of Jerusalem. They're sighing, they're groaning over the abominations. They're godly people. God always keeps for himself a remnant of Israel. And he says the man dressed in linen with the writing case, he says I want you to mark them on their foreheads. I think the man in linen with the writing case is the Spirit of Christ. I believe that because we see the one who seals always as being the Holy Spirit. As we just read, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is our seal is our guarantee of salvation. And now God is putting a seal, a mark, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations. He's maintaining, protecting a remnant. Now at some point after this, there will be horrifying uh, affliction by the Assyrians, and then after that by the Babylonians, and the people will be dispersed throughout all the world. But a remnant, a remnant are sealed, And protected But getting the greatest proof That these sealed servants This 144,000 Are not the church Is that God tells us exactly who they are Flip now back over to Revelation 7 We went through all that exercise And we could have just read the first verse And figured out exactly who the 144,000 are But that was important for us to know God is explicit about their identity Look at verse 4 And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Oh, but that's allegorical. Then why say it? Because Israel is the new church. Pick up the tape on preterism. Israel is not the new church. Jesus never said the church would replace Israel. There's no biblical indication of that whatsoever whatsoever. No, these are people, 140,000 sealed Jews, sealed of the sons of Israel, no question. Why, if it is so clear, do people confuse Israel with the church? Why do they do that? Two words, replacement theology. Replacement theology. And we've talked about this before. It's also called Reconstructionism. Or Dominion Theology, it's even called Kingdom Now Theology, and you can go into any bookstore or go online and you can find all kinds of books by Christian authors, good men, they're just wrong, but books written about that this is the deal, that we're in the kingdom currently, right now, that we are the 144,000, allegorically speaking, we are the sons of Israel because the church has replaced Israel, and gang, I have a lot of problems with that. Because the Bible has a lot of problems with that. Read on a bit further. Listen to the specificity with which the Lord gives us who these people are. He says in verse 5, From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. I don't see from the tribe of Pittus. Sorry, Russ. I don't see from the tribe of Crawford. On here. It's not listed. I don't see from the tribe of Cholesky. It's not here. But the good news is, we don't need to be among these tribes. We're already there. But these tribes, it's very explicit. He calls out the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, these are the sealed servants, and there's no getting around this. So again, how do people get the idea that the 144,000 are anything but Israel? Easy. Allegorize the Bible, and you can make it say whatever you want. Take the scriptures and say they're metaphorical and then this book can be your playground. You can create a whole religion of your own using the Bible incorrectly if you allegorize. But if you read it for what it is, if you take it at face value, then you cannot get around to the 144,000 are Israel. Well, who would do such a thing? Who would say the 144,000 is anything but Israel? Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses claimed to be the true 144,000 until their membership rose to 144,001, then they had a little problem. Who's in, who's out? Historical Mormonism clearly taught that they were the sealed servants. Brigham Young was a major proponent of this teaching. And they also had to change their theology when they got too many people and it no longer fit that 144,000 number. There's a cult group in the 1960s and 70s that's still strong in Europe and Southeast Asia called the Children of God, and they teach that they are the 144,000. Seventh-day Adventists as well. Ellen G. White founded Seventh-day Adventism and taught that they were the 144,000 who were sealed. The problem with all of this is that historically, especially among cults, but even in mainstream Christianity and Catholicism, there has been an attempt to write Israel out of prophecy. To say, as we've talked about many times, God is through with the Jew. But wait, there's even more. You may have heard of a a new, somewhat new, I guess, uh, theory... That Israelis are not true Israelites. That those Jewish people living in the land of Israel or the, um, the the nation of Israel right now are not really the true Israelites. Oh, maybe those from Judah are, but the true Israelites are actually connected to Europe. This is called British Israeliism, and here's the claim. In First Kings chapter 12, we're told the story of the division of Israel. That there was one tribe, one people, one nation of Israel, north and south all together, until Solomon died. Under Saul's reign, and then David's reign, and Solomon's reign, the first three kings of Israel, Israel was a united nation. But Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, stands up and places a heavy tax burden on the people, which is why taxes are never a really good idea. Rehoboam places the tax burden, and it's so heavy that those in northern Israel, the ten northern tribes, said, No, we're not going to do this. We're out of here. We're going to be our own nation. And in that day, Israel split into Judah and Benjamin in the south, the southern tribes, and the ten northern tribes as two nations. Rehoboam, king in the south Jeroboam became the king of the north He was a political user He saw opportunity to take charge To take a throne in the north And so he did So Rehoboam in the south Jeroboam in the north And then came the days of captivity 722 BC The Assyrians came And with fish hooks in the mouths of those they carried away They carried off the ten northern tribes They took them away into captivity, and Israel, the ten northern tribes, as a nation, never existed again. 586 B.C., the Babylonians came and carried away the people of Judah into captivity. The Judah, including Judah and Benjamin, so the rest of the Jews were carried off into captivity. Why are you telling us all this history? Watch this. After 70 years of being in Babylonian captivity, the people of Judah, of the southern kingdom, came back to the land. And so people say, well, those are the Jews, those of Judah. They came back to the land, and so they're, they're true Jews. But what about those ten northern tribes? What happened to them? People say, well, they dispersed. The theory is that they moved on up into Europe, across into Europe, and spread out there. The belief is British Israelism, claiming that the northern tribes of Israel, after being carried away into captivity and never came back, migrated to Europe and became the Brit. Ish or the thin ish, the Swede-ish, the Dane-ish. The original Hebrew for man is the word ish. So they say, well, that's where it came from. They take that Hebrew word man-ish and they apply it British. So that's where they went. It's the ten tribes, and they just moved across. British Israelism. And so what then obviously happened after that? Well, there was a migration from Europe to a place called America. We are the ten lost tribes. We're the ten tribes of Israel. We actually have blood relatives running all the way back to those ten northern tribes. It's us, and therefore the church is the real Israel. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. (laughs) The so-called ten lost tribes gang were never lost, and if you read the Bible, it tells you as much. 2 Chronicles chapter 11 tells of a host of Israelites who refused Jeroboam's rule up in the north, and so they migrated immediately down to the south prior to to the Assyrian captivity and lived among the people of Judah connected to Israel. They were Israelites. Second Chronicles 11.16 says those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed the Levites, all oh, those great Levites, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the, God, to the Lord God of their fathers. The tribes were never lost. Again, a remnant were protected. A remnant of the ten tribes of the northern tribes of Israel Never went into Assyrian captivity But came down, migrated And lived among the Jewish people Just as Ezekiel prophesied There was a remnant that was sealed Marked for protection When all these bad things of judgment Would come down around them God has always preserved a remnant More verses to consider You might want to just jot these down And look at them later In Nehemiah The people are called Jews 11 times Nehemiah That's the book that talks about The Jewish people coming back from Babylonian captivity And so 11 times in that book They're called Jews 22 times in that book They're called Israelites Not just Jews But Israelites The people of Israel In Luke chapter 2 The prophetess Anna Who is prophesying and proclaiming At the birth of Jesus The prophetess Anna Is of the tribe of Asher One of the 10 northern tribes So here we have a person Connected to the tribe of Asher Some 1500 years later or 700 years later after 722 BC she's still there of the tribe of Asher James chapter 1 verse 1 James greets the 12 tribes still reaching out to the Jewish people after calling his 12 apostles check this out Jesus gave an immediate mission and listen to what Jesus said in his day again this will be over 700 years after the Assyrians tore away the nation of Israel the 10 northern tribes Matthew chapter 10 verse 5 The twelve, Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any of the cities of the Samaritans. This is for a specific mission. He says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't just send them to the Jews from Judah, but he sends his apostles out to all of the people of Israel. Jesus understood Israel existed in his day. All of the twelve tribes represented now in the south. Acts chapter 2 verse 11. Peter initially is preaching that great first sermon on the opening day of the church. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles and on other men. Peter initially refers to the men of Judah. But in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. He looks around and realizing it's much more than the people of Judah. He calls them all the men of Israel. In Romans chapter 11, Paul, who by the way is from the tribe of Benjamin, of Judah, even calls himself an Israelite. What's the point? Jews, those of the tribe of Judah, the terms Judah and Israel are interchangeable terms. The northern tribes were never lost. They were never lost. They just became part of the whole Jewish nation down in the south. Now again, back in Revelation chapter 7, verses 5 through 8, John lists them out as he's given by Jesus... He's hearing the number and he's writing down what the numbers are, and it's 12,000 from every single tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, equaling up to, get out your calculators, it's 144,000. No big surprise there. So, what's odd, gang, is that all these false teachings that we just kind of blazed through, all these false teachings claim the blessings of Israel for people other than Israel. But it leaves the curses to Israel. And in my mind, It's inconsistent. It's illogical. It's unbiblical. And furthermore, it's satanic. Why is it satanic? And why would you be so serious about this? Because in Zechariah 12 through 13, the Lord declares that he will not return until the Jewish people, until Israel acknowledges Jesus as Lord and Messiah. The Lord declares he's not going to return until the Jews are mourning over him. Zechariah 12 and 13. Until they recognize Jesus as Lord, God's word, his plan includes Israel. Now from the beginning, from the beginning Satan tried to keep Messiah from coming. From the very beginning, early pages, uh, Genesis chapter 3.15, you can read about a curse that's laid out. The whole point of Satan's work throughout the history of the world is to keep Messiah from coming. Why? To keep mankind from being saved. He tried it at the birth of Jesus, tried to wipe out thousands of children under the age of two through King Herod. Tried through that, maybe we can stop Messiah from coming. Couldn't stop Messiah from coming. Jesus came anyway. He died on the cross. He resurrected. Messiah came and did what needed to be done. But gang, listen to Satan's twisted mind as he thinks, and I believe he believes this. If I can destroy Israel, I can keep Christ from coming because God has to keep his word. And Israel has to believe in Christ before he comes. So I can wipe them out. We can take them off the face of the map. All of God's prophecies fall apart. And what Satan doesn't understand is that God's prophecies are not things that might happen. They're things that God has already seen have happened. They're a done deal. You cannot overcome what God has planned for his people. Of the numerous covenants, by the way, between God and the Jewish people, only one covenant is conditional. There's only one covenant where God says, If you do this, then I will respond in this way. And that's the Mosaic covenant. Why? Why should God keep His word to anyone who doesn't deserve it? Let me just read this to you. Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48 verse 1. If you want to flip there, you can. Just read it quickly. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, and who came forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel... But not in truth, nor in righteousness. Well, they call themselves after the holy city. They lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I declare the former things long ago, and they went forth from my mouth, so I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, God's speaking to the Jews right now. And your neck is as iron sinew, and your forehead is bronze. In other words, they're hard-headed and stiff-necked. And he says, therefore, I declared them to you long ago. Before they took place, I proclaimed them to you so that you would not say my idol has done them. My graven image and my molten image have commanded them. No, you have heard. Look at all this. And you, will you not declare it? I proclaim to you new things from this time, even hidden things which you have not known. They are created now and not long ago. And before today, you have not heard them so that you will not say, behold, I knew them. You have not heard. You have not known. Even from long ago, your ear has not been open, Because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, for you have been called a rebel from birth. Now listen. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake I will act for how can my name be profane and my glory I will not give to another he says this is why I do what I do this is what prophecy is about this is what the tribulation is about this is what it all has to do with it's not because of you Israel that I've kept a remnant it's not because of you church that you exist and can sing songs of praise to me it is for the sake of my name for the sake of my glory that's why I do these things. And all eternity, everyone around the throne of God will praise His name for what He has done and not for what we have done. The Jewish people, gained; they do not deserve the grace of God. But neither do we. They have not earned it. They have not responded well. They have rebelled. So have we. They have sinned against the Lord. So have we. They have been faithless toward God. So have I. And so have you. We're all in this same human boat. But listen, gang, if God were to write off Israel, who's to say He wouldn't do the same thing with us? Why, if He will not keep His promises and covenants with Israel, why should He ever care about us? Why should He keep them to us when we are no better than they? No, the great themes of God's grace... His salvation, His love, and the Bible all have to do with God's faithfulness and not mine. God's grace, not mine. But rest assured tonight, God is faithful when we are faithless. And He will be faithful to you. So back in Revelation 7, there's this covenant call before the storm. God sends an angel to seal 144,000 Israelites for protection and mission in the tribulation. Now I want to finish one, one last thing tonight before we go. Again, looking at these verses and considering Revelation chapter 7 and considering the 144,000. Something is absolutely fascinating here and bears taking a look at. Again, in Genesis Genesis 49, the 12 tribes are listed as follows. Listen as I read these off. This is from Genesis 49. Reuben, Simeon... Levi is exempt. We talked about this this morning. They're not numbered among the other tribes after that point because they become the priestly tribe. So you have Reuben. You have Simeon. You have Judah. Zebulun. Issachar. Dan. Gad. Asher. Naphtali. Ephraim, which is from Joseph. And Manasseh, which is from Joseph. And Benjamin, and that equals 12. 12 tribes, if you take Levi out... You have the 12 tribes, not including Levi, because Joseph, his tribe, became two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Before Joseph was, you know, his sons were considered to be two different tribes. Before that happened, you had 12 sons, including Joseph and including Levi. But you pull Levi out, and you have 11 tribes, but Joseph is split into two, so you get an extra tribe, 12 tribes. Okay? Now look closely at the tribes listed again in Revelation chapter 7. You have Judah, and Reuben, and Gad, and Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi. Levi's listed. Hmm. Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, not Ephraim and Manasseh separately, just Joseph, and Benjamin. Now what's interesting here is somebody is missing. This adds up to 12 tribes, but... It should be 13 because Levi is thrown back into the mix. But somebody is missing. Look at the list again. Do you see which tribe is missing? Dan. Dan's not there. Why is Dan missing? Why isn't Dan counted as these 144,000 Jewish people are sealed from every tribe except Dan? Why? Why isn't Dan there? A couple of interesting possibilities for Dan. Last two things, we want to jot these down. Dan's punishment for idolatry. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, tells us so that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord your God to go serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. And God says, and he's speaking Deuteronomy 29 verse 20. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven and then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law and that's what happened to Dan. Dan got blotted out. Dan is not here primarily because of Dan's idolatry. Something happened. In the promised land, Dan was allotted some beautiful seaside land down toward the south. Right along Israel's coastline. It was gorgeous. And if you go to Israel, you'll see this. And along the Mediterranean, it's it's tropical. It's amazing how beautiful the waters are. And Dan was right up there against the coast. But Dan didn't like their allotment. Dan said, now we don't want to be here. Right there in the thick of Israel, in the midst of all the tribes, in a safe and protected place. But Dan began to travel up north and found a place up north they liked better. They said, let's live up here. Let's move up here. And so, up toward the Assyrian border where idol worship was replete, they founded a city called Dan. Up there is where Jeroboam founded a city called Dan. In Israel... There are all kinds of archaeological finds all over the land, and they're called tells. A tell is a plateau that as you look at the plateau, there's a sense that there must be something underneath it. And so these different tells, they begin to dig and excavate, and they discover cities and entire areas that were just buried by the sands of time and and the destruction of all the different uh, nations who had come into Israel. Up in north Israel, there's a place called Dan. Never gave you the verses well there they are sorry about that we'll come back to it this is Tel Dan this is a picture that we took just here in um, in January you see that big round stone area this round stone area was built by Jeroboam this is part of a temple in the city of Dan that Jeroboam had constructed here's what happened Jeroboam took over the authority, the control, the, the rule of the northern tribes of Israel. And while he was up there, he said, you know, we've got a problem because we're not with the southern tribe. We don't have Jerusalem. We don't have the temple. We can't go down there. We need a place of worship. And so this circular platform, and you can see to the left, there are stairs going up to it. This is a high place. Scriptures talk about idols in the high places. This is a high place. This is actually up on a hill. And this temple was constructed around it. And this high place was a place that molten calf worship happened. Jeroboam constructed this. Jeroboam called for it. He said, we don't have to worship down there. We'll worship up here. We'll worship the symbol of a calf, which for us is the symbol of Almighty God. This will be where the people of the northern tribes will worship. He reinstated golden calf worship even after what happened at Mount Sinai. We talked about it this morning where 3,000 people were killed that day for golden calf, molten calf worship. But Jeroboam in his arrogance reinstated the whole thing. And it literally, and this is stunning when you see this with your own eyes, it happened right there. in tell Dan, the city of Dan in the north, And so one possibility for Dan's absence is punishment for their idolatry. They became incredibly idolatrous. And again, they were right up against the Assyrian border. So not only molten calf worship, but all manner of idols flooded into the tribe of Dan. And of all the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan was by far the worst when it came to idolatry. So isn't it interesting that what God proclaims in Deuteronomy 29, that he will not forgive those who chase after idol worship, Here we see the 144,000 sealed, protected, called people of the 12 tribes of Israel, except Dan. Dan's not there. I'll just leave that up. Unless you want the verses. Do you want the verses up? Okay. There you go. And so, Dan's punishment for idolatry may be the reason that they're missing. Last possibility, Dan's place. (laughs) This is amazing. Dan's place in the tribulation. Not just their punishment for idolatry, but their place in the tribulation. Now again, go back to Genesis 49. You don't have to go there. I'll read it to you. Jacob pronounced an ominous blessing on Dan. Let me just say as an aside, Genesis 49 is one of the most important prophetic passages in the whole Bible. Because Jacob, as he is Israel, is pronouncing these blessings and curses on his twelve sons. We see every single one of those twelve sons, we see the curses played out in the twelve tribes. To a T. Judah, the lion's wealth, through whom comes Messiah, and it's clear that he prophesies that. It's amazing. But Dan, here is here is Jacob's pronouncement on Dan. He says the following Genesis forty nine, seventeen. Dan shall be a serpent. In the way. A horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. But Dan, he says, Dan is a serpent. A serpent in the way. Rabbinical tradition has taught because of this that a false Messiah would come out of the tribe of Dan. A false Messiah would come from Dan that would mislead or deceive the people and speaking of false messiahs listen to this prophecy Daniel 11:37 speaking of none other than antichrist says the following he shall not regard the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall magnify himself above all that little verse Daniel 11:37 speaking again of antichrist and describing him says some interesting things he will not desire women it's entirely possible that Antichrist may himself be homosexual. Because he has no desire for women. He will not regard any God. He'll magnify himself above all. But the phrase that's fascinating is here is he says, Neither shall he regard, quote, the God of his fathers. That is a phrase that is used of Jewish people. The God of Abraham. God of Isaac. God of Jacob. The God of my fathers. That is a Jewish phrase. But somehow here it's applied, interestingly, to Antichrist. He will not consider, he will not regard the God of his fathers. Dan is called a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path. And the rabbis teach that a false messiah will come through Dan. What does this mean? Antichrist may very well be of Jewish descent of the tribe of Dan. And one of the reasons why, as we read in Revelation 7, that the 144,000 does not include the tribe of Dan is it's entirely likely that Antichrist will come through the tribe of Dan, thus fulfilling Jacob's prophecy of nearly 4,000 years ago. If Dan is a serpent in the way, if a false messiah comes out of Dan, and if Antichrist is in fact a Jew, as by the way Hitler, Hitler was, did you know that? that he had Jewish blood incredible then it's possible that the serpentine false messiah out of Dan will be antichrist but either way because of idolatry or antichrist or both Dan is the only tribe that is not sealed among the 144,000 Dan is cut off what does the sealing do? the sealing protects among the tribes of Israel among the people of Israel in the tribulation God is going to select out 144,000 Jews and seal them Protect them, and they will not be harmed in the tribulation. They have, I believe, a very special role as God's ambassadors. Some have said "Is 144,000 Billy Grahams running around the earth and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Daniel, listen to this. In the world today, there are approximately 48,000 foreign missionaries in the field. 48,000 today. The Bible tells us 144,000 Jews, 100,000 more roughly than there are in the field today, will be out there spreading the gospel of the kingdom, talking about Jesus, sharing that Jesus, He is our Messiah, He was the one, we missed Him, but here's the truth. During the tribulation, people are going to hear, and people will be saved. But I've got to tell you something that's absolutely stunning. In the vastness of God's grace, we talked about, began talking about how God's grace is, is just full, even throughout the tribulation. Listen to this. Ezekiel 47, verses 21 and 22. This is a listing in these chapters, in 47 and 48, of the allotment of land for the 12 tribes in the millennial kingdom. In the coming kingdom, which tribes are going to get which land and where that land is going to be. Listen to this. It says, So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves. These are the names of the tribes. From the northern extremity, beside the way of Hethlon, to Levohamoth, as far as Hazar-Anon, and at the border of Damascus, toward the north, beside Hamath, running east to west. So it's designating this land he says, Give one portion to Dan. Dan gets an allotment in the millennial kingdom. What are you saying? Dan is restored. Dan is missing from the ceiling. They're not protected. They lose out. Whether it's because of idol worship or antichrist coming through that people or, or both, they're not there. But in the millennial kingdom, God, in his vast grace, restores Dan. And gives them an allotment of land in that millennial kingdom, an astounding, amazing portrait of God's grace that continues to function against the sin of man. Dan has a place. Dan has a place. Why? Because God keeps His promises. First Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace, the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Boot camp for the Hebrews, brat camp for the heathen, and for all alive at the time, the grace of wrath. Next week we'll look at the next group, listed in chapter 7, which is a multitude of martyrs. By the way, um, one last thing before we pray together. A great motivation for sharing Or accepting, if you haven't, the grace of Jesus Christ today is this. With the exception of the 144,000 and a total of a third of Israel that will be saved, the only way to come to Christ in the tribulation will be to lose your head. For believers who come to Christ in the tribulation will be martyred for it, as we'll see next week. They will lose their lives for it. They will go through a brutality that we cannot imagine. And so for us today, to share Christ with friends and family is that great passionate desire that nobody would have to go through that time. God doesn't want to take people through the tribulation. Remember, this is at the end. This is the last effort of God to get people's attention. Right now, we're walking, living in the age of grace. Right now, God is saying, share the word. Speak the name of Jesus. Have boldness. Carry the sword of the word with you. Don't be afraid to speak the words of Scripture. Don't be afraid to share Jesus. Someone might be turned off. Someone might get frustrated with you. We talked a lot about this this morning. Someone might even get angry if you're if you're placing Scriptures in their hands. If you're always talking about Jesus. Why do you keep talking about Jesus? Because I love you too much to just let you go into the tribulation. And the only possibilities for a person who is in the tribulation are either that they accept Jesus and lose their head for it, Or they die before they have opportunity to accept him. Or they become so deluded by the evil that will be so pervasive in the world they will never accept Christ. And those are three options that we want as much as possible to help people to avoid. Father, give us boldness. Lord, these studies, to me, I'm fascinated. I love studying the book of Revelation. I love seeing your prophecies fulfilled and the intricacy of Scripture and things come together. Oh, it excites me. It thrills me, Lord. But God, we're not here to be thrilled. We're not here just for a lecture of fascinating and interesting archaeology. God, we are here to be motivated by your word to live out Jesus day by day in our lives. To share Jesus with our children, with our friends, with family. To talk about Jesus anywhere that we go. To boldly speak the name of Christ. Because we know what's happening. You've given us the whole picture ahead of time. Not only that we might be prepared, but that we might prepare those around us. God, may we live in Christ. May we be the ambassadors, the ministers of reconciliation that you've called us to be not turning away like Dan chasing after the idols of this world. Oh, Father, may we stand up for Jesus and our voices be heard as we proclaim Christ. And it's in his name we offer this prayer in our hearts. Amen.